If someone does five years in prison, are they in the institutionalized? You got to think about that. Five years locked up behind bars. Someone telling you when to go to sleep, when to get up, when to shower, when to do everything for five years, 365 days in a year. Multiply that by five. It is told that it takes 21 days to make a habit, to create a habit. Think about being locked up for five years. Anyone would think that, yeah, they're institutionalized. Now, this story you're getting ready to hear on Chin Wang with Rook, it's about a remarkable young man. That did more than that. Well, I'm not going to give the story away. I want you to listen to it. But the name of this podcast episode is Anomaly. Now, you might not know what Anomaly is, but look it up. Google it. But don't do it until once you hear this guy's story. Enjoy. What's that on that I'm different. Yeah, I'm different. I'm different. Yeah, I'm different. I'm different, yeah, I'm different. Pull up to the scene with my cylinder missing. Pull up to the scene with my cylinder missing. Pull up to the scene with my cylinder missing. Pull up to the scene with my cylinder missing. Middle finger up to my commodation. Welcome to another episode of Chin Wagon with Rock. Today gonna be a very interesting episode. I think it's gonna be educational, it's gonna be heartwarming, it's gonna be spiritual, all the above. I have with me Shane. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I also have with me the podcaster herself, the height one, Antris. Hello, everyone. Now, Shane, I've been hearing your name float around for quite a while now, and I was very interested in meeting you and doing this podcast with you. Yes, sir. So to start off, give us a little background about yourself. Start... Start at your teenage years. Teenage years. <laughs> uh, <woo. laughs> teenage years, I, I guess um, you can say up until a point during my teen years, I had the typical teenager life. Grew up in a two-parent home with my mother and father, um, with my younger brother um, and an older sister. You had Cub Scouts, footballs, social groups, and did fairly well in school. School was pretty easy for me. And and I think that kind of set the stage uh, for the spiraling at the end of my teen years. At about the age of 12 years old, a situation happened that, that kind of destroyed what I felt like destroyed every bit of the foundation that I had become accustomed to. It was during the early 90s when the crack cocaine epidemic hit athens Clark County and kind of blew the back door out. And for myself, it was I was old enough to know what was going on, and I had enough friends whose mother, father, or both parents had fallen victim to crack cocaine for me to know the devastation that it could wreak on a household. Um, mm. But for myself, it's like I, I kind of felt like somehow our home was immune from it because my parents, they, they stayed above the free, I guess you can say. And to my younger brother and myself, I guess they were kind of our superman and superwoman, uh, because even he, as young as he was, knew what crack cocaine was. The incident that I'm referring to happened one evening, one night. I was playing in a hallway of our home with my younger brother. My parents had been going to this 
spare bedroom that we had. It just kind of like, it seemed like, I, I guess it was probably just a weekend thing, but to me as a kid, it had happened often enough for me to get curious or, or nosy. And so I, this night or this evening, you know what they were doing in the bedroom. So with nothing, not expecting anything, but just being curious. And I remember playing with my younger brother, kind of getting away from the door. And when they go in, they would take the doorknob out of the door. So I was just tall enough to work my way to the door and peeped in. And uh, and what I saw, it devastated what would, would probably be a misnomer. It, it destroyed a part of me. There was my mother and father doing what I knew was crack cocaine. And you were how old, 12? I was about 12 years old, yeah, when this happened. And my response to it now, looking back and now working in the profession that I do, was the typical response that when something hurt, you run away from it. Right. And um, I remember getting my younger brother kind of away from the door, and I left out of my home that evening, both physically and, and metaphorically. Quick question. How did yes, you, at 12, knew what that was? At 12 in athens Clark County, growing up on the east side of Athens, you knew a lot at 12. Crack cocaine was not a, a hidden drug at this time. It, it was open. It was obvious. I grew up, um, for the most part, in Spring Valley subdivision. And right across the bridge, you have Nellie B. Wow. So you have these contrasts here. Whereas in Spring Valley, it was kind of this working class neighborhood. And in Nellie B, in any projects, that's usually where the, the effects of drugs and poverty is felt the quickest. And so you kind of saw that across the bridge and then eventually you start seeing it in spring valley and it didn't take long to realize that something was happening and you see it enough that you already know what it is you see people walking around on the street of course some of my peers became drug dealers and so uh it was the better question would be how would you not know right yeah. so at 12 how did that affect your life for me and and i and i explained this in in retrospect course i couldn't articulate it then but for me i think because i believed in my parents so deeply and everything that they brought to me whether it's church my dad was big and encouraging us in school my mom she was just one of the most loving most compassionate person so she gave us kind of this ability to love anybody all those things that i associated with them once i saw that scene that night i think i wanted to disassociate myself with those things i i rebelled in other words, and I got into the streets of athens Clark County. Um, and just, it was, uh, <laughs> by, from the time I first began to hang out in the streets to the time that things kind of reached a peak, it was a relatively short period of time. In about six years, things had changed drastically. By 13, I myself started doing marijuana and drinking alcohol. And I think it was just that all the things that my parents had made taboo for us as kids was like all bets were off. You know, it's just like, right. how can you enforce or expect this from us? And here it is. You're doing this to us. And again, I didn't articulate it like that then. But just in hindsight, that was my emotional reaction. So marijuana was just as available as as uh, true. Yeah, as anything. So at that point, did your younger brother know that your parents was doing no, and it's funny because I look back and I kind of had this, I could say, paternal sense to get him away from the door. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I never told him. And he continued to live in a home. I began to be in the streets, um, going from relative house to relative house, and just, just getting away from that. But I would never, when I came home or was around, 
I would never tell him what I saw or what happened, you know. Yeah. In fact, I think he never knew this until he heard my first interview that I've done here within the last few years. Wow. Yeah. And so, uh, but it, it doesn't take long. It Looking back, it doesn't take long. I was by 14. My first daughter was born. 14? 14. Wow. She was graded when I was 13, born when I was 14. By the age of 15, I had myself sold my first piece of crack cocaine. By 16, 17 issues, I was selling marijuana. But for me, school was so easy that I still, you know, I made my way through. And it was just like I kind of had this, this this dual life. In school, being the smart kid in the class, but coming out of school, it's being this hurt kid that's running away from all this pain and indulging in all the things that the other kids were indulging in. So I was one of the kids that went to class, did well, but mm-hmm. during fourth period break, I went to the corner to smoke some pot with so, the white kids. So you right. know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was almost like, it was almost like an alter ego. And I'm glad you describe it like that because at the age of 18, something had to give. And I got to just that breaking point, that, that crossing the road was doing my senior year in high school. And, um, and you would think that I would have gotten better because I made it through school. But I think the older I got, the better I did in school, the more disappointed I became in my circumstances. And, and it was at the age of 18 that I was had held various jobs. I always kept a job, even with my little side hustle of marijuana and my little bout with selling cocaine. I kept the job. And for me, I had a job at D-Best Foods. People that are from Athens may remember <laughs> this restaurant. It was a hot wing restaurant that came to Athens. I mean, it came, blew the doors open, mm-hmm. but disappeared just as quickly. I was hired on there as a cook. Uh, the owner, named Harold, he quickly kind of developed a liking for me. Mm-hmm. And so he raised me to the level of, basically of a manager, pretty much what it was. I became a night shift crew leader, but because the manager was seldom there, I essentially became the night shift manager. And uh, he gave me access to his office. I mean, you just keep two big nine millimeter pil- pistols in there, stacks of money. And for me, it, it was... Um, it was encouraging because I knew he trusted me because he wasn't a, a very trusting man. Right. And so it actually inspired me, you know, and I think a little part of me began to return through that job. And after working there for about probably about five, six months, I think, one evening I remember pulling up to work and he was standing out in the yard and there were two other teenagers that worked there too that had pulled up at the same time. And as we were walking to the door, he just had this look on his face. And he was like, well, you know, I'm sorry to tell y'all, you know, I, I have to close the restaurant. I mean, no warning, no nothing. And because of my parents' drug addiction at that time had elevated to the point that I was essentially taking care of myself and to the best of myself, my little brother, this was a big loss for me. It was a big loss. And it was just like for a lot of kids, working meant that they could buy the shoes they want. Uh, for me, working was eating. It was surviving. And so when he closed down this business, it just this this downward spiral happened. And I think a part of me may have relived the trauma of that moment of disappointment. Mm-hmm. And and it wasn't long after that that I ended up getting caught up in the situation that landed me in prison uh, with a sentence of life plus fifteen years. You had a sentence of life plus fifteen years. Yeah, and the judge told me that with a straight face. Uh, Eighteen years old, and what had happened is. In the midst of me looking for another job, I had my own apartment then in Parkview Extension. I re-met some guys that I knew, you know, back in elementary school. And they were into various criminal activities. They were snoring cocaine. That's something I had never done. I despised. And unfortunately, they were into stealing and robbing. 
And it was just kind of like this perfect storm. I remember applying for a job at the poultry and walking through with the white lady that was interviewing me. And she just kept saying, you, you're going to do great here. You're going to do great here. Mm -hmm. So it got down to taking the drug test. You know, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it just set the cup on fire. And, and she, she pleaded with me. She said, just whatever you do, just keep it out of your system. Give it 30 days. Mm -hmm. Come back. I promise you got the job. Well, you know, if you're a teenager, 30 days is a long time. Yes. Yes. For me to not indulge in, in what I was self-medicating with and right. to go without because I had tried to get away from selling marijuana, had gotten away from selling crack cocaine. So when she said that, they were just like. I don't know, maybe a death nail, um, because the friends that I had re-met had moved into my apartment with me, and they had already suggested robbery as a way of getting money, because by this time I was paying child support, and then I had right. adult bills by yes. this time. And when that first came up, it was kind of like there's a comment just kind of thrown out of there. And of course, for me, it was just like, that was one thing I despised then, mm -hmm. the guys that were so-called the robbers. But as I say, association breeds stimulation. Yes. You stay around something long enough, you get accustomed you to it, it. And you become it. And the conversation came up. The frustration with not being able to get a job was in there. And I remember the night when I finally said, well, what's up? And by them having already done it, they described it in the most basic way. <laughs> Go in the store, show the gun, get the money, leave out. No one's hurt. And, and they had said it enough, and they, they agreed on it enough. That I began to believe that, you know, right. maybe this was an easy way for me just to get past this moment. And I ended up kind of <laughs> doing the logistics, I guess you can say. Because one of the things that I quickly saw that they, they had no foresight, no no planning abilities. It was right. just like, let's just run in. It's like, okay, run in when, you know, how. And, mm -hmm. uh, of course, they didn't have a car. I was the only one with a car. And so that kind of put me in the lead of this situation at all. Um, when I agreed to go along with it two nights later, it happened. The robbery did kind of go down the way that they explained. People have a tendency to become jelly when they see a gun in their face. Mm -hmm. So myself and my co-defendant had left out of the store, and the guy that had the gun remained in the store. Now, he was supposed to have been taking the store clerk to the cooler. Um, we get back to my car, and I, I guess about halfway across, he had this loud shot. Mm. And, and I, I can remember hearing the store clerk just, just kind of just, just scream that it just, it stayed with me and still does. And it was just like, I remember stopping. It was in the middle of a field, just stopping. Just, and I remember him running out of the store with the gun and he ran past me to the car. So I went out and I got in the car. We drove about a quarter of a mile and I just began to curse him out with every word I can think of, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think what made me so angry is that he had no explanation. You know, I'm like, why? He had no reason to do no that. No reason. No reason. I think I would have been better off had he articulated some type of reason. But right. it was just this, this, this blank stare. And, and that just that, that began it all. Of course, I separated myself from them, went to live with the aunt, and ultimately turned myself into a police officer, Iron Triangle of the Block. And I remember when I walked up to the police officer's patrol car, I knocked on the window. And uh, he let the window down. I said, I said, you're probably looking for me. And so he said, looking for you, who are you? And I said, Shane Sims. And he looked and he said, you're Shane. I said, yes, sir. He opened the door and had me to get into the, getting in the patrol car. And uh, I sat in the passenger seat. And so we talked for a minute. He radioed in and he was like, you are Shane. Hold on. You sitting in the front seat? Yeah. 
That's sat in the front seat. <laughs> it <was> just, <laughs> yeah, that's something we don't do. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Absolutely. Sat in the front seat. And um, talking to him, I was like, can I at least go to my grandmother's house? And he was like, I'm going to try to see if we can arrange that. He said, but right now you got to go with me to the precinct. And I said, okay. And so I got out the car to go get in my car. He's like, no, you can't you can't drive your car. He's like, he's like, you're going to have to ride with me. Then I was put in the back of the patrol car. He took me from there to my grandparents' house. And just so happened, my sister and aunt, some of the family was there. And uh, let me say my goodbyes. And he spoke with my family. And it was to the precinct. And the rest was, uh, was history. So they were looking for you. Yeah, so they had how, how did yeah. they know it was y'all through that Good question. The guy that had shot the clerk ended up stealing a car and got caught with a stolen car and told them that if they dropped the auto theft charge, he'll tell them about a murder and armed robbery. Wow. Oh my goodness. That yeah. makes no sense yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah. But during during that time, ninety five, for auto theft, you're going to boot camp. Mm-hmm. Right. Forty five, ninety day boot camp and that was it. But uh but I, I guess just boot camp was a little too much for a little him too much for time. him. So he he would rather tell them about a murder that he did, by the way. And yeah, I was saying he did it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he he gave them a version that, it, and it's funny because once I did hear the interview or get to see the tape, he kept my name out of it for a couple of the interviews, interrogations, and it was on the last interrogation. I don't know what happened behind the scenes when it came on tape. One of the detectives asked me, "Say, well, what about Shane?" And, you know, when he said that, I, I, you can see him looking at the door like, you know, and he literally put his finger to his mouth like, shh, be quiet. And he said, yeah, yeah, Shane was with them, too. And so he told them that all of us uh, were together. He wasn't with us. He wasn't going to have anything to do with anything like that. And we did the murder and armed robbery. Wow. And that's how they started looking for us. And uh, the way I found out they were looking for me, I was riding through Nellie B. And his ex-girlfriend stopped my car. And she said, Shane, you probably don't want to go through there. She said, because the police have been asking about you. And, you know, for me, it's just like, no, nah, that's, that's exactly where I'm going to go. I went from Nellie B to the block, and that's where I saw the officer sitting there. Wow. I, I know he was, like, shocked because that doesn't happen. Yeah. No one comes and, like, oh, you're looking for me here. I go and sit in the front seat. And sure. That's amazing. I think for him, too, I, I've always looked younger than my age. And I, and yeah. I think just the conversation as brief as it was before me telling him who I was, was enough. We we tend to stereotype in our heads, right. you know, yeah, both ways, do. good and bad. Mm-hmm. We look at somebody, they wouldn't do this or they would do that. Yes. And I think mm-hmm. it's just one of those cases where he had kind of profiled me as maybe. Yeah, this, this no, not you. <laughs> right, right. And and he did, and he had a hard time kind of wrapping his mind around it and all. But, yeah, and, and it's just uh that started my induction into the Athens Clark County Police Department precinct and, all right, let me ask a, ask a quick question because I'm just curious. Now, you say you sold weed. Yes, sir. And you sold cocaine. Mm-hmm. Cocaine is more profitable than weed, so why didn't you stick with selling cocaine and make a bunch of money sure. than peddling weed? For me, I didn't like the effects that cocaine had on people, and I was too <laughs> kind to be a dealer. You know, it was just like, I mean. Oh, so, it, you, I, so you're a, a dope dealer with a conscience. Yeah, right, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yes, um, I, I used to, there was an apartment down the street from my parents' house. That's where I first set up shop at. Right. And it's like, it was a working crew used to come there. It was the construction workers, uh, or the women that, that was, one woman, she was a teacher that would come there, but I would, 
they would be getting high. I would be sitting on the dresser just having a conversation with them. I wow. never treated them less than. And um, and it's funny because I didn't really look at it like that until after I had gotten locked up. And my dad, I was talking to my dad one day, and he was like, um, man, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so asked about you. And these were some women that I had sold drugs to. And he said when they found out that I had got locked up, they came to his house and she, he said they were literally crying. And, like, you know, and that, here I am. I'm their dealer, their users. But that's when I realized that the way that I treated them probably had given them just some escape from just being exactly. junkies, so to speak. Exactly. You know? But yeah, I was I was too soft for the dope selling, you know. I just, <laughs> it's like, I probably, I ain't killing nobody. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so that's, that's so yeah, that's truly yeah. amazing. Yeah, but the wow. marijuana, on the other hand, yeah. right. <laughs> but, you know? That just goes to show, though, that that you didn't belong there. Right. That wasn't you, yes, but it was just that what you had seen and what you had been through that that drove you there. Sure, sure, yeah. That hurt That's is serious, you yes. know. And uh, yeah. today I, I work in the field of recovery, and we talk about gateway drugs. Mm -hmm. Often people say marijuana is a gateway drug, but yeah. the true gateway drug is trauma. Yes, I mean there's just no bigger, no quicker way to addiction of any sort, um, whether it's sexual um, substance use, than trauma. Let me get this straight now. I never have smoked or drank anything in my life. I grew up with a family that everyone was on dope. Right. And that was, like you said, crack cocaine came out then. Everyone right. was smoking crack cocaine. So you, what you're telling me is when people get on drugs, trauma is behind it. Yeah. Most yeah. of the majority, majority of the, of the time. time. Majority of the time. People, human beings, we become vulnerable to unnatural things. You just think, and I, I don't want to get too philosophical, but you think that a child comes to this world only wanting what's good for it. Wanting comfort, wanting milk, or mm -hmm. wanting food as it grows. It doesn't want to go outside and eat a rock or a tree right. or right. something, but especially as the intellect develops. So you got to think what puts a human being in the position of wanting to ingest something in his or her body that historically has hurt, harm, and killed people. So see, that's what gets me because I I keep saying to myself, meth, crack, heroin, it should be no new customers because yeah. you people are seeing what it's doing to people, but yet they still get on it. The only way there'll be no new customers, there are no new traumas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like that. That's that's that's, that's when like when that. we're able to address it at that level. Uh, what I mean is addiction when we get to the point as a community we're able to address addiction at the personal level versus just superficial stuff that makes everybody feel good to say hey i support this i support that until we address it at, at the human level stop saying stop being so focused on what you asking people what did you do and instead ask what happened to you hmm. and that that changes the dynamic because we become a really we become a, a community or a society of entertainment we, we like to watch cops. We like to watch the end results. We like to talk about what Uncle Bub did when he got high. We like to Good talk point. about mm -hmm. what they did, mm -hmm. what they did, yes. what they did. And we get so caught up on the entertainment part of it that we don't stop and say, well, what happened to Uncle Bub to make him this way? Right. And what I've learned, too, is that over the years I've learned that sexual trauma is probably the number one gateway, not just for women, but for men, too. A lot of men have experienced sexual abuse and have not talked about it. Right. And I learned this in my years through prison and kind of, I, I gravitate to kind of this counseling position in prison, you know, unintentionally. And a lot of men felt comfortable talking to me. And some of the hardest men you ever want to meet um, had been victims of sexual abuse. Mm. And, um, and I understood the anger. And as a matter of fact, the, the more angry, more aggressive they were, the more likely it was that whatever trauma they experienced was so deep 
that they will probably have suppressed it for years. Right. And there's very little that is that bad than sexual abuse. So why don't you think when you was a 12 year old and you saw that that was trauma to you? Sure. Why didn't you go that drug route? I think marijuana for me was my escape. And, and I probably would have graduated to heavier drugs had 18 year old not happened to me. And uh, definitely I don't say that prison is a deterrent from drug use because there was drugs in prison too. Yeah. But for me, I think it gave me enough of a pause to reset. You know, I grew up in the church and it was during my time in the county jail that it was like I returned back to those roots, those foundations. And, and I didn't do it, wanting to get out of it. You know what I'm saying? It's just like a part of me felt like there has to be some atonement. I did it because I knew I had to recenter me, recenter myself. And so it was either, it was one of those make or break situations. When you go to prison, it's either it's going to make you or it's going to break you. And a lot of guys. What went through your mind when that judge said life was 15? <laughs> oh, yeah. Let me go back to that day. It, it's hard to describe. A part of me, I think, maybe felt the relief that everything was said and done. But I remember feeling lost because my attorney and the district attorney kind of now looking back, plotted together to bring me in for the guilty plea without the support of my family. Because my family had been there the whole time. When they came with the idea for the guilty plea, it was in the evening time. And I didn't realize it then, but it's like they had orchestrated that in a way to take me away from my strength base, my support, and to kind of put me in this. I remember they put me in this room, this long mahogany table, and uh, mm -hmm. me sitting here, my lawyer on one side, district attorney on the other side. And then the district attorney started out by saying, Shane, you, you are, you're a good kid. I've learned a lot about you, blase squaze. And he told me, he said, with this plea, if you accept this plea, he said, you'll be up for parole in seven years. And he said, with your mentality, he said, you go in, keep it on the straight and narrow. You won't do any more than 10 years. And my lawyer, of course, who had had something of a relationship with my family was like, yeah, this is maybe in your best interest and you'll be okay. And, and that, too, that plays a significant part of my story because it wasn't until I was in prison about a year and a half that I found out that they had lied to me. I was just, I was getting wow. ready to say that because yep. that's why I work it now. That was a lie. Yeah. They, they can't tell you how many years you can do. That's up to the uh -huh. parole board. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, it wasn't even the years done. It was the parole eligibility. At mm -hmm. the beginning of 1995, the law had changed from seven years to 14, 14 years. years. So you had to do at least 14 years mm -hmm. before you were considered for parole. They knew that, but told me in seven years I'd be considered. And I remember that moment I called home and a family member told me, and she was just like, she was like, Shane said, when do you come up for parole? And and I told her, whatever that seven-year mark, and I, she just got quiet. I said, why you asked me that? She said, well, I called the parole board. And she said, they said you don't come off the road until 14 years. And that was my first time knowing it, hearing about it. And I remember standing there with that pay phone. It was just like the world spin. Mm -hmm. and, and I got off the phone, and I remember I went back to my, my cell, and I just sat there for a long time because I knew for me, I had to make some decisions about life because you know you go from seven years possible to 14 years double it's yeah. like that's that's a that, that's a, that's a lifetime yeah and i think it was at during that time not at the moment but during that time that i just made peace with the fact that i may very well die in prison and my thing was that if i died in prison at least my life is going to be worth something and it was just like instead of me becoming angry and bitter i began to pour myself into life love and that, that was how I got outside. That became my new drug, mm -hmm. just 
talking to people and mentoring people. Because one of the things I had that I, I think that 80 to 90% of guys didn't have in prison was I was raised by my father. I did have kind of that balanced mentorship yes. in the beginning. And so there were some things that I had that I took for granted, didn't realize I was so angry at my parents about their addiction, that I didn't realize that they were great parents in terms of they were human. They were human. They tried to deal with a, a very human situation, and they made some very human mistakes. But my parents were great parents. And seeing other guys and what they didn't have, how much they lacked, it made me appreciate that even, even more. more. And so um, I kind of grew into the role of, of, of a mentor. And what kind of solidified it for me is that one officer who later on, years later, became a warden of the prison, she stopped me one day on the sidewalk. And she like, Sam, she said, you know what? She said, I got a new name for you. And I was like, what's that? She said, I'm going to call you Counselor Sims. She said, every time I see you, you either talking to somebody or listening to somebody. And that's what really made it clear in my head mm -hmm. that that was a role that I was playing. I think I became more intentional after that. And, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful to this day that she even acknowledged that because I may have just kept, you know, just doing. Yeah, just doing it but day to day, not really understanding what role that God had given me at that time. And uh, she opened my eyes to that, so I became wow. more intentional. And uh, and that was it. It was just like, if I die here, I'm going to live in my adult self. I call it a quality life. But back then, it's just like, I'm just making the best of every day. Mm -hmm. and so so how many years did you do? I, I ended up doing 20 years on uh, the sentence of life plus 15, which is actually a blessing. Uh, in Georgia, if you have life, never mind the 15, you're going to do at least 30, 30 years, years yeah. before you even you can even think about it. But what happened is that over the time, my time in prison, reputations travel, especially when you stand out. Mm -hmm. And the first warden really noticed me. And, and how I still don't know, I just say it's by the grace of God because I was at Telfast State Prison. And that was probably 1,200, 1,500 man mm -hmm. prison. And I wasn't doing anything unique. I was, I just, I, I was consistent. I began to um, teach GED. So that was my, I structured my day from that. I got up. Worked out, went to breakfast, I went to work in GD, came back to the dorm, worked out, and I, I gravitate towards a lot of older guys, but the deputy warden had been paying attention, and so he stopped me on the sidewalk one day, and he said, uh, Sims, I said, yes, sir, he said, you you got, you got have a detail, work detail, and I said, uh, yes, sir, I teach GD. He said, okay, he said, I'll tell you what, he said, I got a position in the warehouse that's open, and warehouse, that was like the job. You, you were there with all the new clothes, all, and there's only two guys work at a time, so it's a lot of freedom. You, you get away from prison to this environment, and he said, I, I have a warehouse position on me. He said, how would you, you like to take that position? And I told him, I said, let me think about it, and he kind of looked. He said, okay, and so I thought about it, and it's just like how, how my young brain made this decision. Again, I thank God, but I came to the conclusion that I work in GD. I saw men getting their GD through me helping them. And I saw the, the reaction when you have a 50, 67 year old man that gets his GD. And I was like, for me, it was, there was more substance in doing that. And so I ultimately told the deputy warden, I appreciate it. I said, but I think I'm where I want to be. You turned it down? I, turned it down to continue to teach GD. And so, um, awesome. you know, when, when you're in that position, you, you realize, for me, I realized that my life had to have substance in order for me to make it. Right. Me going to the warehouse and be able to sneak and sell sets of clothes and right. get soups and that, that I knew that wasn't going to be fulfilling. I had deviated and started selling marijuana and crack. So I, I had an, 
a concept of, of the value that's placed on what you do versus what you made. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just, I was just at that space where I, it, it was a prestigious, you can make a little money or whatnot, but it, I knew it would not be fulfilling. I knew it put me back in that same position as selling drugs where you're kind of stealing clothes and you know, reselling, yeah. even yeah. though they know it. It was just like, I, I didn't want to do that. So I, I thought about it, just like, no, um, working in GD older inmate had gotten me there. As he told me, he said, this is where you need to be. And, and I, I loved it. And so I stayed working at GD. But that kind of set the motion for administrations communicate one another in prison. Right. And so I think that's what started the kind of the circuit, the communication. But then, of course, by me being Muslim, that stood out even more um, because every prison uh, during that time and really throughout my incarceration always discussed the Muslim population. Because if the Muslim population is a good population, you tend to have a positive influence on the compound. Right. But if the Muslim population is corrupt, you're going to have some problems on the compound. And, and it was a captain that finally told me this. And so with me just being a Muslim, I was the leader of the Muslims during that time, the mm-hmm. imam. I think that that kind of added to well, this may be somebody that, that we can work with. And I ended up getting transferred from state TFS State Prison after doing just five years. That was a miracle because you usually have to do 10 years or better in close security before you get transferred to medium. But five years, they came woke me up one night and I transferred to a medium security prison um, yeah, called Frank Scott State Prison. And I um, got there. And, and it's funny because I had dreamed about going there. It's like I dreamed that when I got to the prison, I walked up on the stage and there was a store there. I ended up working at the store at Frank Scott State Prison, which wow. was probably the next most prestigious position. Yeah. You're trusted with all this food and you're able to communicate with everybody because they're coming, they're coming here. And then plus all of the women worked in the store were civilians. So you go in there, there's oh, no wow. police. It's just like, <laughs> wow. you, know, you, you come in the door like, man, what's up, Sam? Yeah. You know, and, you know, throw you something to eat. And so all day long, you just vibing you the music playing they're talking about things out here in the free world and so it keeps you kind of acclimated abreast of what's going on and you're working you're moving talking to people that's coming to the store window and so that was i think phase two of i I would say probably my growth and so sure enough i got frank scott i went to the store and uh that again is a position that kind of stands out and People watch because they figured you got to be trustworthy. And I think people so have true. these negative expectations. See, for me, I, I love negative expectation because the more negative your expectation to be is, the greater going to be the surprise when I confound right. it. And it's like, and I had to learn that. Yes. But, but, and I knew that they were watching, didn't know, is he going to steal? Or, right. But it's just like, and that kind of built up a reputation that ended up following me a little bit further. So ultimately, three different wardens at three different times petitioned the parole board for my release. Three different wardens, yeah. It was at three different times. And the first time, the warden called me in, and he was like, he said, man, he said, I've been checking you out and speaking with your counselor. And he said, I don't know how far to go, but I'm going to petition the parole board on your behalf. Hopefully we can work on trying to get you released. About a year or two passed, about two years passed from that. The second one was a Hispanic warden. He was the only Hispanic warden in, in Georgia. And, <laughs> and, uh, and by this time, I was working as administrative orderly. So I'm working in administration now. And so I'm, I'm constantly around civilians all day long, secretaries and so on and so on. And the only, I guess you say, official is the warden there. And so this warden, Warden Morales, he was always just, he was just real shrewd. He was a Marines, I think it was, older Hispanic guy. So he would just kind of sit back and just, just kind of watch. And uh, when he came to the prison, I was already working in administration, so they kind of briefed him already. 
but he still, I could tell it was still just that standoffishness because only myself, another inmate at the time worked in administration. And so I think what broke the ice with us is that when he came, what I noticed every time I leave administration to even go back to my room, he sent the officers down there to shake my room up. They told so, so stuff taken out my locker and it's just like, this happened probably once every two weeks or so. And so finally one evening I was in the office kind of cleaning up, getting relieved. And I, I knocked on this door and I was like, well, Morales said, you got a second. He, you know, he got it so funny. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on in. Come on in. <laughs> so, so, you know, and I said, um, I said, with all due respect, I'm going to say this. I said, my room has been shaken down more times since you've been here mm. than my whole time in prison. And he kind of, you got see his shoulder kind of relax. And I said, but I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job. I said, but what I do want you to understand that the me that you see right here, that's the me that is back there too. Mm-hmm. So you can look all you want to. Mm-hmm. You're going to consistently see that this is who I am. Right. And I remember he, that's his first time coming to Shannon Door, which is my first name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he like, he like, Shannon Door, I, I appreciate that. But wow. it was um, about a year later after that, that he petitioned the parole board. And he pushed it hard. He pushed it real hard. And uh, it wasn't enough, but it was enough to, again, put my name up at the parole board because they keep a file. And so, uh, but it was the last warden, (laughs) and he was the most redneck warden of any warden I ever had. I mean, tobacco spitting, big country, uh, used to talk about driving trucks through the mud. (laughs) (laughs) You know, real system man. Uh, I I would imagine that he probably had on a MAGA hat, you know, during during the Trump era. So, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) but he he came in and of course me obviously being Muslim and um, having so much trust amongst his staff there. I, th- I think he was more curious than anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wasn't as suspicious. I think he was just more curious. Right. And so eventually got to where we started having little conversations here and there, but keep it moving. And so one evening, there was a young guy that I was a mentor. He was a blood gang member. He wanted to get out of the blood gang. So I had where he was coming with me to our religious service and just just talking. And he was about to get out of, out of prison. He ended up going to a, a go-home RSAT program, which is a go-home program, moved to the other side of prison. Mm-hmm. He went there, got in trouble for something that he really didn't do. They took him out of the program, moved him back over to the regular compound where we were, and they moved him into my dorm. And we used to talk all the time. But there was another blood gang member that was there, and both of them were, were leaders in their respective sets, but different sets. And they had bonded. We used to eat together every night, talk. And so one evening... They went out to the store, to the commissary, and the young guy that I was mentoring, a young blood gang member from his set, robbed his partner from another set. And the way it goes, he couldn't defend his partner because the young guy that robbed him is from his set. He couldn't do anything. Long story short, they got back to the dorm, and I, I was in administration working. They said when they got back to the dorm, they said, you know, they was coming in, they're just beefing with each other, so the blood gang leader got robbed said make come on in the room so he went in the room said they fought and he my that little partner said he knocked him out say he knocked my little partner out and said that you can the door just slammed open and said he grabbed he drug my little partner out on the cement catwalk and with some brocanes on just jumped up and just basically crushed his head so he jumped on his head about two or three times and said it got so bad that by the time he got him from our dorm to I guess say about 50 yards up south. Well, his head had swollen up so big you couldn't even recognize him. So by that happening in my dorm, 
actually next door to my room, I was doing with no lockdown. So I couldn't go to administration for a while. So I stayed locked down for a whole month and found the warden was able to get me out of lockdown to come back up to administration because, you know, they don't have just anybody up there. Right. Imagine what it's looking like up there. Right. But when I came back, man, I remember walking in his secretary office and she was just Mayberry. She was a real, mm-hmm. interact with me was probably the most she ever interacted with any uh Black person, black especially person. my age. Right. And, and, and I don't mean to make this about race, but this just was my experiences. Yeah. And when I walked in her door, I mean, she almost jumped out of her seat. And she was like, Sam's. And she's like, how are you? Because in their mind, somebody got killed in the dorm. Maybe I got killed. Uh-huh. I could get killed. So, and, and I knew that they were worried. But when I walked in, she said, she said, how are you doing? I said, I'm all right. She said, boy, we missed you up here. Wow. So she said, she looked over at the warden's office. His door was through her door. She looked and kind of leaned back, and she leaned up. She said, the warden been talking to the parole board about you. And I said, really? She said, yes. She said, um, it's supposed to be a member of the parole board. It's supposed to come today to interview you. I said, okay. She says, just do what you're doing, and just when they come, we'll call you. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay. So you know, I left back out, and sure enough, they called me to his office. And when I came in his office, he was like, asked me how I was doing. And he said, look, he said, I've been talking to the parole board about you. He said, and I have told them every good thing about you under the sun. He said, I'm going to get you out of here. He said, but if you get out here and mess up, I'm going to kick your ass right there. <laughs> you know? and, and it was funny because his his level of confidence gave me confidence. Yeah. I had gone through this twice before. Yep. But it was just something about his level of confidence. And sure enough, I mean, it wasn't 20 minutes later, a field officer from the parole board walked inside his office. And the way I knew that he was serious is because when she came in, first thing she did was look at me. She said, this Shannon or Sims, right? He said, yeah, this is him. So she sat down and began to tell me about my whole case. And she said, so what we're doing, we're trying to figure out how to approach this. So I'm sitting here with the warden and the pro board field officer, you know, plotting on my own release. Mm-hmm. And so we talked, and it was a, just a good conversation. Kind of, I guess you can say kind of robust conversation that, mm-hmm. that really really got into some of everything. And so her final words were, okay, seems we, we got the ball rolling. And she said, Warden, all that I need now is the recommendation, the actual recommendation written out. And we'll submit it and go from there. So I come back later that week, and the secretary, she's sitting there with this pile of papers. It's just, just a high pile of paper on her desk. And I, I almost called her name. Uh, and I said, uh, I said, you got a lot of work, don't you? She said, yeah, I got a whole lot of work. And what it was was a lot of sex offenders had made parole, but they couldn't parole because of the restrictive laws. So it was her job to go through it and try to resolve it. And so she said, and on top of that, she said, I got to write your parole recommendation. Mm-hmm. I said, really? She said, yep. So were you optimistic? Like, Yeah, I uh, was. Really? I was. With, with, I don't know what it was, and maybe because I knew he was a part of the good old boy system. Yeah. Um, he had been in the system probably 30-something years, and I knew he had some pool, some, some political clout. Versus the first Hispanic war, or the right. first other one was a black war. He was the system, so right. to speak. Okay. And uh, and it was just his level of confidence. When he spoke, he wasn't a, a bull jiver. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. When he said something, he pretty much meant it. But even if he said it with a mouthful of tobacco, he, he meant it. As, <laughs> three different races. Three different. And I've never thought about it in that context. Yeah, yeah. that were three different races. That, that, that says a lot. It does. Yeah. That says I mean, a lot. Black, Hispanic, <laughs> Country white guy. Country white guy, yeah. And I never thought about that context, but yeah. yeah. It just shows the consistency in you and your character who you are. Exactly, it does. So uh, with with this, when when she she said she was busy, my brain working the way it does, I said, I got an idea. She said, what is it? I said, how about you handle these files 
and I'll write the letter and bring it back to you. <laughs> so she leaned up. She said, how about you do it? And she said, you better not tell anyone. So I left out, man. I went into the mop closet. You know, that was my office. Closed the door, cut the light on, wow. and I proceeded to write my own parole recommendation to the parole. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily exaggerating in terms of lying, but I'm, 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 I'm yeah. you know, yeah. just saying. Yeah. So I brought it back. I gave it to her before I left. The next day I came, next morning, she said, she said, that, that is an excellent letter. She said, I've already retyped it, signed it, and given it to the warden. Wow. And so it was sometime that day he sent it to the parole board. And fast forward about about five months, maybe. I was, we, we have what's called Tylene. Tylene is the Bible study for Muslims. Um, so we were up in the chaplain area having Tylene. So I was kind of walking around, making sure the guy was situated. We had a video that we were watching that day. And the Christian chaplain, myself, man, we, we were so tight that we were about as tight as you can get and still be legal. Just a funny guy, man. And I think we, we looking back, I think we encourage each other just as much. And he was a real funny guy, older. He was an old pastor in the street. Mm. And just real, a sense of humor that just, just a serious sense of humor. It just make you laugh. And I remember I was walking around, all the guys situated watching the video. So I went back to our library to check on the guys that was in the library. So I came back out to sit down the back road to watch the video. And I was sitting there, I felt a tap on my shoulder. So I turned around and, and chap standing there. And, you know, I automatically start laughing. Just he, He's just that type of guy, just like, what's up, chap? He said, when you get a chance, come in my office. So went inside his office. He said, close the door. So he's sitting back in the computer, and he's talking with this. He, he just has this expression that just makes you laugh, but all of a sudden it turns serious. Right. He said, uh, he said, pull your chair up a little closer. So I pulled up closer. He was on the backside of his desk, and he turned the computer screen around. He said, excuse me. He said, I just got an email from the parole board. He said, and this email contains something I have never, he's in all my years of working in prison, seen in my life. He said, this email specifically says to send inmate Shannon Dor Sims to a transitional center. He said, and it says ASAP. He said, I have never seen ASAP as an addendum on any notification. He said, so you should be leaving soon. And it was just like, I still get chills now wow. just thinking yes. about that. And and he had tears in his eyes. Mm. And he was like, I'm so happy for you. And he was like, hopefully we'll stay in touch. And I didn't tell any of the guys when I came back out. Just mm. kind of yeah. chilled out and told some of the closer ones to me. A lot of people say, well, you don't tell people you're going home in prison because everybody tried. That That's not really. That doesn't really happen. Yeah. No, the reality is not, not in, in, in my world because for a lifer, to say I'm going home, it gives everybody else hope. Right. Yes. So yes. it is actually the opposite of what people think. Mm -hmm. You see somebody go home, it's hope that the parole board is doing something. So it's it's not like the TV make you think. So not saying it doesn't happen sometimes, but ultimately prison is such a dark place that any good that happened to anybody gives the next man hope. Oh, you know. Yeah. And it was uh not too long after that, I was coming back, I think from from dinner, from chow. And I was walking down the sidewalk towards my dorm. So the thirteen sergeant, thirteen, they're, they're the prison oh, police. Yeah. They're, they're, they're the big guys. Yeah. Sergeant Hurst, he was standing a little bit down from my dorm door. And he just kind of had his hand hand over his wrist in the front with the military pose looking straight across the yard. His job was to watch all the movement, make mm -hmm. sure nothing happened. And I was walking down and about to go into the door of my dorm. And he said, Sims. I said, what's up, Sergeant? He said, uh. 
when you lead, and the whole time he's looking straight ahead. He's not even looking at me. He's just looking straight ahead with this kind of just this <laughs> stiffness. He said, if you leave, he said, who's going to take your place? Meaning as a Muslim leader. Mm -hmm. He said, have you have you trained somebody for it yet? And me, of course, I said, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't, but. <laughs> I said, yeah, absolutely. And he just stood there, and there just this awkward silence. And I said, am I leaving Sarge? And he just nodded his head, yeah. I wow. said, when? He just stood there. I said, tonight? He nodded his head, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's how I found out that I was getting transferred to a transitional center. Got transferred, stayed there maybe five months, which was unheard of because as a life sentence comes to transition center, you got to stay there from 12 to 24 months, but about five mm -hmm. months. Um, one of the counselors that took a liking to me, he reached out his contact on parole board and I was released and came home February, February 3rd, 2016. And, uh, this is hold on 2016 yeah mm -hmm. and i'm just not hearing about you <laughs> <laughs> you've been out for a minute yeah yeah and yeah one thing that amazed me is the fact that you didn't get institutionalized sure because you that's a long stint to yeah. do and not get institutionalized yeah that's yeah. amazing i, I attribute that to working in education where I was teaching then working in administration, so I wasn't constantly amongst inmate population. Right, mm -hmm. and you were doing something that fulfilled something you. Fulfilling. Yes, sir. And you was yes, actually sir. helping others and not taking in the negativity. Yes. Right. He was doing something positive the whole time. Right, right, and that's what I keep now. So uh, today I'm, I'm in a whole other world. I'm actually a chaplain with the Addison Park County Police Department today. And so I'm, I'm a certified uh, law enforcement chaplain through Gaelic. I've became chaplain at the end of 2016 uh, mm -hmm. until now. Uh, executive director of People Living Recovery, which is a nonprofit to help people with mental health, substance use, and homelessness. I am co-director of Modern Pathways of Recovery, which is uh, in-house treatment uh, for men. Uh, I own a mobile detailing business, a motivational speaker, and a new father. I have an eight-year-old, eight-month, <laughs> eight-month-old uh, son. And uh, you've been busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 wow. yeah. Uh, and yes, life just it, it's unfolded itself. Okay, yeah. uh, let me ask you this. What make you want to do all the stuff you're doing in the community today? What 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 driving you? What, what make you, you want to do that? How could you go through and survive what I have and not want to? How could you see how gracious God has been in this circumstance and not try to afford others that opportunity not even have to go through it? Amen. Right. So Amen. it's um a life sentence, man. I, I don't wish that on anybody, man. That that's psychologically when you're given that everyone is given a card mm -hmm. when you first go into prison, tell you when you could potentially come up for parole. So I remember when the majority of Dormain got their cards, you know, it was five years, four years, ten years. Mm -hmm. When I got my card, it said a possible release date and had a bunch of X's on it. Oh, oh my wow. goodness. Yeah. And so it's just like all that stuff I remember like it was yesterday. And my yes. thing is that if I can give someone hope, because that's that's ultimately that's 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 what I feel like God has put me here to do, to give mm -hmm. people hope. If I can give someone hope in their circumstances and keep them from reaching that that hopelessness within that leads to that hopelessness without, then I've I feel like I've I've done my part. Yes. And I always say just I focus on doing the next right thing. And I'm not doing what I'm doing now because I you know, so intelligent and mm -hmm. plotted it out. Because to be honest with you, most of these opportunities came in spite of myself. It was just me just doing what I do. And somebody hearing and seeing and like, hey, you want to do this? Mm -hmm. And it all just kind of coincide with each other. And so uh, 
So that's it. So that's my new drug. That's awesome. <laughs> you are an amazing person. Yeah, thank you. You really thank are. You. I thank mean, you. To, to hear this story and to see where you are now in life. Because, like I told you, I, I grew up in a, a, you can say, a crime family. And I'm used to it. You don't, right. you don't see people do a 180 like you did. Yes, sir. I'm not used to that. I'm not used to seeing <laughs> that. And, and, and to see you and speaking with you and hearing your story, it, it, it starts off a normal person childhood, a two-parent home, because most people come from a single-parent home. Sure. Mm-hmm. You came from a two-parent home, and for you to witness the people that you look up to, your mom and dad, doing something that mm-hmm. you know was terribly wrong, mm-hmm. and for you to spiral... But you had that foundation. They, sure. they gave that foundation that you sure. came back to. Right. You have an amazing story, dude. Yeah. I mean, it's Thank just... You. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I got to pay homage to my parents, man. Um, my mom died while I was in 2001. But we had gotten to the point where, you know, that was my biggest supporter. And my dad today, he's, there's nobody here on earth that I'm closer to. And he's Amen. doing extremely well. He he is my go-to guy yeah. when when... Get in the crunch. That's my go-to guy. Now I had a situation here recently where I had to have the HVAC system replaced in my house. So I didn't think it's Sunday. The bank is not open. Mm-hmm. So it's like one of my Muslim brothers I'd done time with. He and one of his partners came down, drove an hour and a half to do the replacement. I realized that it's Sunday. Mm-hmm. I, I can't. I can't pay it. The cash app only let you send five hundred dollars, and it's just like. Right. So I called my dad. Pop. I said, "What's up, son?" I said, "Man, I got a problem." I told him, and he was like. All right, I got you. You know, and it's just like, it just you know, and to see him doing that well, and I think yes. it does just as so much for him to be able to do that yes. for me as it does for me to have yeah, him there. Mm-hmm. And and it's just like uh, that that he is my go-to guy. He is that 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 kind of silent voice in the background, and he always say, "Son, just just do the right thing and just keep God first. You're gonna be all right." That's his phrase. Just no matter what it is, just do the right thing. Keep God first. You're gonna be all right. Foundation. 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 Yeah. Foundation. So, I'm grateful for my parents. I'm grateful for their humanness. I'm grateful for their flaws because it set stage for me to grow into who I've come today. I'm grateful that they overcame their resilience. And so, this is not a, uh, an indictment against mm-hmm. my parents. Mm-hmm. It's just. Um, these are facts of life. Using that court ter- terminology. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and for you to be a felon, mm-hmm. and what you're saying now can give people a hope, like you said, because most people think that once I become a felon, I'm done, because what can I sure. do? Because the way society is set up is for you to either go back to what you were doing mm-hmm. that put you in there because they're not going to hire you, they're not going to hire right. you, you can't get a job here because you're a felon. You can't do this, you can't do that. But I'm talking to someone right now that overcame all of that. Sure. And and, and that's that's hope. Yes, that's hope. Yes, and, I, and I got to say as a disclaimer, I'm not the norm. A lot of families hear my story and they look at their loved ones like, why can't you do that? But this, right. I, I'm not the norm. It, the society is set up in such a way that if you're failing, you're going to be yeah. disenfranchised. It mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. There's no lie. Jobs don't want to give you mm-hmm. an opportunity. But it was by the grace of God. I met people like my first job, well, my second job, first main job was at McLean Southeast. Mm-hmm. And anybody know McLean know you can hardly get to go with a misdemeanor, much letter, much less <laughs> an accessory to felony murder. But yeah, I know. had a friend of mine whose daughter, goddaughter, was HR manager. And so he talked to her, and long story short, he called me one day after I'd gotten off my third shift job. He was like, man, what do you think about working at McLean? And I was like, it'd be good if I could. But he was like, what do you think about working at McLean? And I was mm-hmm. like, he said, i tell you what. He said, you're going to get a phone call. She called me. 
set up an interview, and I had an interview with the CEO of McLean because of my charge. And I walked in, two older white guys sitting at, again, a mahogany table, and I sat down, and one, he was just, who was the main guy, he was just real rigid. But the other, I think he had already spoken with the HR manager about him. You could tell he was a little more, he leaned into the conversation from the beginning. And basically what they asked me was, why should we hire you? We, we These are your charges. Uh, you're on parole. And and I told him, this is my thing is I always take ownership of my story because if I don't, you give somebody else the right to tell your story for right, you. Right. And so I didn't try to skate around. I went straight to it. This is who I am. This is how I became this. And took it all the way back. And by the time I finished, the CEO, he was like, Shane, I got one question. He said, when can you start? And I got on that McLean. And, uh, and I worked there for almost three years until I got into the field of recovery. And today I'm a CARES, which is being Certified Addiction Recovery Empowerment Specialist. And this is evidence-based training that you have to have lived experience. In other words, you can't not have a felony or not have had experience wow. with drugs mm -hmm. to be okay. in my field. Okay. So a square gentleman like yourself can never work as right. a CARES. And that's just the dynamics that God creates. And mm -hmm. those opportunities are out there. But you do have to put yourself in position right. to, to be in those spaces. Yeah. But I still, again, I say to you know, family members and loved ones, it's, it's not that easy right. you know, for a returning citizen. Do you feel like that your punishment was too harsh? Well, if it took me years to say that because I couldn't even bring myself to say a man died. Although I had no control over that, a man died. And I couldn't bring myself to say you know, they gave him all the, the, the time. He's dead. He's like not coming back. And but it took years for me, baby, to separate that reality from the political reality. Mm -hmm. Politically, I feel like had my skin been a different complexion, my circumstances been different, I would have never gotten a life plus fifteen years. As a matter of fact, when I was brought back for the the guy that actually did the murder, he went to trial some years later, and they brought me back from prison. Mm -hmm. and, and the new district attorney, one of the first thing he said to me, he was like, Shane, he said, I've been looking for y'all file. He said, I really don't understand how all y'all got so much time for this. And he said, but in this case, he said, there's really nothing I can do for you. He said, now the female, he said, I may be able to help her out, but they wanted me to testify against uh, the shooter. And But I had already told him, I was like, there'll be no benefit in me coming back testifying against him what's done is done so y'all can send me back to prison and to be honest with you, i think he respected that more, more than, than anything because mm -hmm. that wasn't no that wasn't just anger that wasn't this he just kind of nodded his head he said okay he said i hate that i can't do anything to help you out he said i could i really would yeah because now granted i know how the law works because i'm in it that like you said accessory but you didn't have anything to do with the shoe y'all had come out the store he stayed in and he did the shooting. But the way the law worked, if y'all had never went in to do it, it wouldn't uh -huh. ever happen. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But your sentence to me was just extremely too harsh. Well, it was. Extremely. And I, I did get the, I, I don't even want to call it pleasure, of speaking in my sentencing judge's courtroom. He had no idea who I was until I got to that part of my story. I was invited to speak at a graduation. His secretary had arranged it. So I was speaking to the drug court graduates and basically giving them encouragement. But my, my theme of what I said to them was the system is not going to care about your circumstances. They're going to care about your actions. You know? So mm -hmm. at this point, you have to be responsible for who and what you are, regardless of what made you that way. Mm -hmm. And I told them about my situation. I said the system didn't care 
that I was in my senior year in high school. The system didn't care that it was my parents' drug addiction that led to mm-hmm. my own. The mm-hmm. system didn't mm-hmm. care that unlike my co-defendant who I all dropped out of school, seventh and eighth grade, I was having had plans of going to North Georgia, mm-hmm. to West Georgia for to be a physical therapist. The system didn't care. I said, I don't think the system care about it is I did this. So they're going to do that. Mm-hmm. And I said, in fact, I was sentenced in this very same courtroom. And he was, the judge was sitting on the stage behind me, uh, on the bench behind me. And uh, one of my family members was there, and she said, when I said that, I was sentenced by Judge Lawton Stevens, said his mouth is dropped open. Mm-hmm. Of course, I couldn't see it. He was behind me. But he came up afterwards, and, and he had tears in his eyes. And he said, Shane, he said, I'm glad you made it. <laughs> and for me, that was uh, that was vindicating. Right. But just like... Mm. So before we end this, if someone needs your assistance, sure, how can they reach you? I normally give out my cell number. I'm getting a little bit wiser on that. Or get a separate phone. But um, but you know, and I hate emails because they're so impersonal. But it's a necessity at this point. But my email is Shane S H A N E dot P as in Paul, L as in Love, and the word Recovery at Gmail. Shane.plrecovery at gmail. Okay. All right, before we go, do you have anything to say to the listeners right now? What I would say is um, embrace your traumas because they, they, they're these little hideous things that, that continue to motivate, push us, inspire us from this dark, secret part of the brain. And if you're dealing with flaws you just can't get past, feelings you just can't get past, nine times out of ten, there are unresolved traumas that are within yourself. So you've been through abuse, you've been through some heartbreak that you haven't been able to resolve in your life. I encourage, seek counseling. Seek counseling. Don't try to muscle through. Don't try to be tough. And I say this for the men even more so than the women. Right. Because until your wiring is corrected, mm-hmm. then your output is going to continue to be faulty. <laughs> wow. I love hey, it. I love it, too. I love it, too. The height one, Andrews, anything? I just want to say I admire you as a person. Um, people like you, you are very rare. I, I knew you before and after, and yes, you're still the same Shane. Thank you've, you. <laughs> you've always had that level head. You've, you've always been a leader. And, and I, like I said, I just admire you as a person. Yeah. And Thank keep you. doing what you're doing. Thank because you. that, that Thank day, you. going back, when you went to that police officer, that's when your respect started yes, ma'am. from there. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. And what I got to say is I'm I'm just, I'm glad I, I finally get to meet <laughs> Shane Sims. And I, I feel privileged. And it was so well worth the wait. Thank you. You are, are an amazing person. You really are. I'm, I'm kind of speechless right now. And, and for me, that, that's, that, that says a lot because I'm, I'm never speechless. But I, I'm, I'm truly amazed. And if it's anything that you ever may need, you got my number. Yes, sir. Uh, no matter what it may be, yes, sir. I, I'm I'm there. Thank I, you. I'm there for you. Thank you. Thank you. And likewise, likewise, yes, see you both. Yes, thank sir. you. And I want to thank my guest co-host for coming along with this journey. I appreciate it so much, and hopefully, we can do this co collaboration more. Oh yes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. most definitely. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> that sounds good. Okay. From the mind to the lips to the heavens. Until next time, peace from the heart. Peace. I'm different, yeah, I'm different. I'm different, yeah, I'm different. I'm different, yeah, I'm different. Pull up to the scene with my cylinder missing. Pull up to the scene with my cylinder missing. Pull up to the scene with my cylinder missing. Pull up to the scene with my cylinder missing. Middle finger up to my commodity. I'm different, yeah, I'm different. 
I'm different, yeah, I'm different. Yeah.